Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, like the centurion who saw your son's death, we are in awe. We are in awe that you were fully aware of the rebellion that would ensue, but you still created a good world and created us in your image as part of that world. We are in awe after that rebellion that you promised to bring a savior to the world who would set all things right. We are in awe of your faithfulness to that promise. And despite the enemy's constant attacks and human unfaithfulness, the word became flesh, God became man. We are in awe that the son of God would die and no ordinary death, but a death that changed everything. The earth shook, curtains tore, those who were dead were made alive again. It was unmistakable that nothing could remain the same after this death. So Lord, forgive us for our short attention spans to this awe. Forgive us when the awe wears off or we suppress it. Lord, we need forgiveness. In various ways, we have all made ourselves Lord in our lives. And in this, we have denied your son's lordship that was given to him in his death and resurrection. You never abandon us, but we abandon you out of a lack of awe, out of arrogance, and out of apathy. We are in awe that we can come to you and confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful to forgive. We know you are mindful of our weakness and that you accept the sacrifice of the Messiah and you don't count our sins against us. Father, as you have made us all sons and daughters through your son, we pray that you would continue to add children to this family, both locally and universally. Use us to show your great mercy to the world. Let our acts of mercy be fruitful, not only in good works, but in evangelization. We specifically pray and ask for fruit from Camp Agape and from Salem for Refugees. We know that you see the plight of the vulnerable. Your ears hear cry for justice and restoration. We believe that all wrongs find their root in rebellion against you. And we know that the greatest restorative need is the broken relationship between humanity and you. So we pray that the service of those who went to Camp Agape last week will result in converted hearts. As those kids return to their homes, work out through your spirit a desire for your word and Bible teaching and Christian fellowship. In your supernatural way, provide all the means necessary for those kids and their families to know you and serve you as their Lord. And we pray the same things for refugees that are already here and will be coming to Salem. We pray that you will use those of us in this congregation that will work with them to reveal the blessing of following your ways. May the refuge of your Lordship be so prevalent in our lives that those who are seeking refuge here be brought to you by our testimony. And Lord, we thank you for the safe and healthy birth of Thaddeus Robert Hadley. We thank you for gifting him to Nathan and Esther. And we pray that as they train him and Bowden to follow you, that they will trust you and they will grow as disciples and as your children while they train up new disciples in their home. May their home be filled with thanksgiving and praise and let your word be quick on their minds and in their words. Likewise, we pray for ourselves today and we, as we consider your word together. Remove distractions and darkness from us. Let your word find its way to the diseased parts of our heart that need healing. We gladly and willingly submit to you this morning. In all these things, we pray in accordance with the will and the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Good morning to you. It's good to be back with you after a couple weeks of vacation. Uh, welcome to those of you that are visiting. Why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm 21 and 22. This morning you all drove your cars to this building. You parked them. Hopefully you locked them. And then you walked inside, and you talked for a bit, and you came into this room to find a seat, and now you find yourself in a room with no windows to be able to see whether or not your car is still parked where you left it. 
Is there anyone here who is worried about whether or not your car is still in that same location? A couple of you are thinking, well, now I am. <laughs> well, most of you are not worried. Why? Well, that means you've mastered the capability that developmental psychologists term as object permanence. This is the ability to know that an object still exists, even if it is hidden from your sight. Now, when a baby has not yet reached this developmental level, it's the source of some fantastic fun, is it not? And you don't have to be a parent to understand this. Any of you who play with kiddos, you know this. You know the phase where they have a toy and they're super excited about it, and then you take it and you hide it. And you don't hide it in some miraculous way. You literally put a blanket over the top of it, and they look at you like you are the greatest magician to ever live because you have made that object disappear. And meanwhile, the blanket sits shaped exactly like the toy that you supposedly made disappear, but in their minds, it's gone. This is also why, why this is the best and easiest way for lazy people to do hide-and-go-seek, because you just get the kid to cover their eyes, and they think that they're seeking after you because you've disappeared, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Now, I would submit to you that there are later levels to this realization of object permanence as well. I remember being home sick from school one day as a grade schooler, and on this one occasion, I was watching the old sitcom Growing Pains. Is anyone old enough to remember Growing Pains? A couple of you? Man, I'm getting old. I used to get more hand raises when I would mention these things. I've got to adjust my, my illustrations here. But on this one occasion, that's what I was watching, is Growing Pains. In this episode I was watching, the star, Mike Seaver, played by Kirk Cameron, yes, before his Left Behind fame, uh, he, he's also staying home from school sick like I was. And during his day at home, he has the realization that the world outside of his self-centered view continues on without him, and this is shocking to him. It was also news to my own grade school level brain. You mean my class is still meeting, my teacher is still teaching, but I'm not there. The world outside of me still existed and went on as if I didn't exist, even though I didn't see or experience it. And so in a way, it was understanding a more global idea of object permanence. Now, unfortunately, with the movement of our society into more widespread narcissism and selfishness and the trend towards a theory of knowledge centered on one's own experience and feelings, we have regressed in our ability to comprehend object permanence. Our society believes if I don't see it, if I don't experience it, if I don't feel it or agree with it, then it must not be real. Now, we see the effects of this regression even more with abstract conceptions of permanence, things like promises, oaths, vows, and covenants that historically served to create a relational object, such as a marriage. Marriages are broken in an instant now due to no longer feeling in the evidence or feeling the evidence that the relationship exists. But historically, the social context of a vow, of a covenant in marriage, would be permanent enough to hold couples strong through the ups and downs of marriage. Couples who might not feel the evidence of the covenant, the evidence of the object of the marriage, would stay in it through down seasons to reap the benefits of a long and fruitful marriage in the building of a family. You can think of this as a form of object permanence as well. Even though they didn't see it, even though they didn't feel it, even though they didn't have the love they once had or the chemistry they once had, they knew it was still there even though they couldn't see it. In a very big way, this larger idea of object permanence can be used to conceptualize our conception of the permanence of God and his relationship with us. We're often like children who have not yet developed object permanence with God. When things are going the way that we desire, we feel the evidence of God's presence in our lives. Or maybe when we have certain emotions around connecting with him, we feel the evidence of God's presence in our lives. Any of you ever had the mountaintop experience of a retreat only to go home and suddenly feel like God's not there anymore? I left him on the mountain accidentally. Well, entire theological subcategories that historically and biblically have no precedence have been formed to back this ongoing, insatiable search for a feeling of God's presence as if it is the evidence that he exists. And so when life is good in our eyes, God must be near. But when life is not good in our eyes, we begin to doubt God's presence. 
and God's activity in our lives, God's goodness, or God's care for us. We, and I do say we because I include myself in this grouping, often think like spiritual infants who cannot remember that God is permanent simply because from our vantage point, metaphorically speaking, a blanket of suffering has been thrown over the top of him. Is it any wonder that Paul said in Ephesians 4 that God sends us as leaders into the church as a gift to build up the body until we reach a maturity where we will not be so easily swayed or moved? Like spiritual infants, our experiences and feelings often cast us on the winds and waves of doubt. But we are not to stay there. What Christ is doing in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit is to grow us up into the model of Christ who is able to stand firm in his worship and resolve to obey and trust the Father even under the most horrific circumstances. And it is only by understanding the truth and speaking it clearly and boldly to one another that God is permanent, that God does not change, that he still exists. It's by speaking that to one another and boldly proclaiming it to ourselves that we will see our faith grow. And so this morning, we're going to see the psalmist, David, go through the experience that I've just described. In Psalm 21, David will have a time in which thanksgiving and praise flows naturally because the evidence of victory and salvation is sure. This is a mountaintop moment. When God has blessed us, it's often obvious to see his present and permanent hand. But then in Psalm 22, in contrast, David will enter one of the darkest times of his life. It is so dark that it prophetically speaks to the very crucifixion of the Messiah that would come from his lineage almost a thousand years later. It is a time where it seems as if God has completely abandoned him, when in fact he just can't see him. But in the midst of this experience of the silence and abandonment of God that we will see in Psalm 22, David will shock us with his response of praise. Because he knows that even though he can't discern God's presence and hand of providence, God is as permanently present and sovereign as he has always been. And here in Psalm 22, we will be given the truth of what the mature follower of Yahweh does when suffering comes. And it's to admit their weakness and to cling to the praise of God. And I am sure that it will challenge us all this morning and grow us from immature spiritual infants. And again, I say we, because I include myself in that. And it will move us towards the end goal of being more mature image bearers of Christ. Today, David the psalmist will model for us the key to praising God when he does not answer. Praising God when God does not answer. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. Now, as we've already had Psalm 21 read to us, let's jump right into the text where we will see that praise comes naturally in times of victory. And to do this, we're going to take a little bit of what we learned last week, and we're going to compare Psalm 21 and Psalm 20. In desiring to teach through the first book of Psalms a bit expediently, I originally went through and combined various Psalms regarding shared themes. That's how we kind of structured it and scheduled it. And one of the pairs that I struggled with was Psalm 20 and 21, directly before Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 20 and 21 go together possibly better than any two other psalms. And Nick right now is thinking, great, <laughs> why did you give me 20 and 23 then? <laughs> no, we talked about this a little bit. It, it, it's hard sometimes to contrast and compare the two psalms. But 20 and 21 do go together, even though we had you look at 20 and 23 last week. But the reason they go together is Psalm 20 is a prayer for the king and his victory in an impending battle. They're asking, Lord, will you please help us, help the king, serve the king in the midst of this upcoming battle? And then Psalm 21 then follows as a national song of praise and thanksgiving for God, as it is obvious that he answered the prayers for the king. So 20 is, please help. 21 is, thanks for helping. Now you can see it in the parallel statements really quickly. Psalm 20, verse 4, asks God to give the king the desire of his heart. Psalm 21, 2 says, you've given him his heart's desire. Psalm 25, uh, 20, verse 5 says, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Psalm 21, 2 says and answers, you have not withheld the request of his lips. 
Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The 21st Psalm then declares, The king, in verse 7, the king trusts in the Lord. In 21, God has answered the prayer of Psalm 20 in two different ways. He has blessed the king with victory, or here rendered salvation, and he has confronted the enemies of the kings. He's done everything asked. Now, you can tell from the symmetrical praise of Yahweh's strength in verses 1 and 13 of of Psalm 21 that the entire structure of the psalm is mirrored so as to focus on the central theme of verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. And we all think, that's amazing. That's the faith I want to have. Yahweh has blessed the life of the king here in Psalm 21. He has given him victory and salvation from the enemy. He has given him his heart's desire. He's given him a crown of fine gold on his head, life and a length of days forever and ever, splendor and majesty, steadfast love, and he has put his enemies to flight. This is answered prayer, amen? Now these are all causes for praise and thanksgiving. And not only that, from David's perspective, at the writing of this psalm, the statement of length of days forever and ever could be a hyperbolic statement of God giving David a sense of invincibility, right? You know, kind of like Super Mario Brothers in the little star, right? David blinked from that moment on. No, I'm just kidding. That's an old reference too. Man, you guys are way too young. All right. But others see it rightly in his words as a nod and a wink to the messianic promise God gave to David to always have someone on his throne ultimately coming to pass the Messiah that would come from the Davidic line. So God ultimately will bless David through the line of his Messiah. The kind of blessing that we see here makes God's providential hand obvious, does it not? You look at this and you go, there's no way that this happens without God providentially acting. And in these moments, we all must confess a bit that it's far easier for us to give praise, isn't it? When we look and we say, God, you're obviously in this situation, I can tell by my human capacity, we go, now it's time to praise. That's how we act. And I think in one sense with the Lord, he, he knows that about us, and he says, that's okay. When I give my child a gift and, and they get really excited, I don't go, well, you should act that way normally. <laughs> don't do that, parents, it's not good right? No, we say, oh, that's great. They, they understand. They see it. And the same thing is true with the Lord. I don't think the Lord looks on that with derision. I think he says, that's great. That's wonderful that you praise me in those times. Now, before we continue with this train of thought, let's pause for a moment and recognize that this praise is a wonderful example for us. Psalm 21 gives us a great example of thanksgiving and praise when it is obvious that God has answered our prayerful requests. All too often, I find that we are great at making petitions to the Lord, but then when we receive an answer, we don't utter a word of praise or thanks. I was in a situation just the other day where I have been praying for something for weeks for someone in the church. And I was so busy in the moment that they came to me and said, hey, here's the result of what's been going on, and it was the exact answer to what I've been praying. And I went, oh, praise God. And I walked away, and I immediately was convicted, and I thought to myself, what am I doing? I should be dropping to my knees in that moment and going, praise God! The God of the universe just answered my paltry little prayer. It would be like an ant saying to me, hey, don't step on me, and me going, okay. That ant would freak out and be like, what has happened? And I have the same thing happen to a far greater degree with the God of the universe, and I go, ah, praise him. Move it on. Far too often, that's how we act. It's almost as if we believe we were entitled to receive what we were given. And so Psalm 21 gives us a great understanding that when we experience victory or blessing, an answer to prayer, it's not something we've earned, but it's always, always the grace of a good and loving God. And so how important and obvious is it that we should be giving praise when we do receive an answer, and it is an answer of blessing and strength? How important is it? We're talking about today what it's like when God doesn't answer. How much more so should we be praising when he does answer? And before we ever get to discussing what to do with it when it seems that God is silent, I think we should be reminded by Psalm 21 to practice giving praise in all things that show God's grace. 
I mean, friends, I used to make fun of people who, and this was a long time ago, who had to pray before meals. God already knows. Like, why are you so formal? Man, how often do we forget to pray for food that's literally been delivered by God's system? Rain, crops, feeding of cows, burger in mouth. Somehow I just get that? No. Lord, thank you for creating all of this, because if we were on Mars, we'd be dead. Right? How much more important is it to praise God in those normal blessings? And Psalm 21 gives us this understanding. But back to our main train of thought here. If we see Psalms 20 and 21, and they're so obviously parallel, why didn't we join them together? Well, we could have, and honestly, uh, that's how we should read them. But for purposes of preaching them, what stands out in contrast is the combination of 20 and 21 in sharp distinction from the spirit of Psalm 22. Psalm 20 prays for victory. Psalm 21 answers the victory and gives praise to God. But then we see Psalm 22, and look at what it starts out with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the same author, friends. What do you do then? What do you do when the God that has answered before does not answer you in your current trial or tribulation? Friends, every one of us in this room have experienced this, have we not? Lord, you gave me this massive answer to something huge last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago. And today... It's as if the heavens are brass and my prayers are bouncing off and returning to me unheard. What do we do then? Well, this comparison calls us to be honest with ourselves in application of Psalm 21. This comparison reminds us that it is easy to praise and give thanks when things go our way, but that shows and reveals a heart that we often are still just lords of our own life, and we're thankful because God has done our will. It's so easy that we often forget to praise and act in any way other than entitled infants in our thinking towards our heavenly provider. It's easy to feel God's presence and connection with him when life is going our way. The first word of the Hebrew in Psalm 21.7, look there, it says for in the English. It can be translated because, as if to say, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, the king trusts in the Lord. And we would say, because they experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. But that's not what it means. It means because the steadfast love of the Lord is permanent, even when you don't see it. Because it always exists, because it's his character. The king trusts in the Lord. And that trust is trusting even when it doesn't make sense, as we'll see. And so we say, yes, when it feels like I am being loved by God, I trust in God. That's our admission to God. And friends, be comfortable saying that. Lord, I am an infant. It is easy for me to trust you when I feel loved by you. But friends, this is where the cold, hard reality of conviction comes in. Do we love the children among us only by giving them what they ask for? Is our definition of parental love defined by their feeling of that love? Or is our love more permanent and more misunderstandable than that from their vantage point? Love is far more complex than just giving them what they ask for. And the love that is being discussed here is God's hesed. Everybody say hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word for his steadfast love. It is one of the core character traits of Yahweh God. And it's the core character trait that led him to his covenant love of Israel. And it's this hesed that will be what David relies on in Psalm 22 when things are not going his way. It will be this hesed that gives David a permanent rock upon which to stand when life is difficult. And it's this hesed in which we must trust when life does not make sense. And so with this realization that praise comes naturally in times of victory, we can now contrast it with Psalm 22. And as we read it, most likely, all of us in this room in 2023 as Protestant Christians, we will read it through the lens of Christ in the New Testament, 
where the gospel writers and Christ himself quote from it extensively. And friends, this is not bad. We should do this. But remember, in reading the Bible, we always need to start with the contemporary context of the author to understand what is said. If we skip too far ahead, we miss the weight and the depth of the text. And so as we read it now, I want you to do your best to read it as Psalm 22 existed for 1,000 years before Christ came on the scene. 1,000 years between David's authorship of it and Christ's fulfillment of it. Let's read it first in that original context, and then we will get to the cross. But let's read together now just the first 11 verses. Psalm 22, 1 through 11. And we're going to read it together, starting in verse 1. If you have an ESV, it will totally match. If you have another translation, it might be slightly different, but the meaning is the same. And let's read it with the tone of lament that is behind it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. What we see here is the seeming silence and absence of God. The seeming silence and absence of God. This psalm, as I said, was written a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. And that has great prophetic significance that I will talk about in a moment. But when we're reading interpreting scripture, we first want to read it in its original authorial intent before ever jumping further. That actually is what makes prophecy so amazing. It has a twofold intent, contemporary for the author and speaking forward across the mountaintops of prophecy. Now, otherwise, if we don't read it this way, we will miss the full significance. And what do we have here but David lamenting that God has left him? It seems that God has forsaken him and refuses to save him, or at least that's the perspective of David. The salvation that was so easily seen and praised in Psalm 21 now seems like a far-off memory for us as the reader. Now, we do not know the chronological order of Psalms 20, 21, and 22, but we don't need to. Just as you and I have moments of great intimacy with God and other moments where we feel that we are in the valley of the shadow of death, as we heard last week in 23, David walked through the same pain and heartache that we do. Friends, this experience of the seeming silence and absence of God is such a part of the human condition that God saw fit to place an entire song in his hymn book for his people on this topic. It is such a part of our lives that it was placed here as a song to be regularly sung amidst the assembly of God's people. And notice that it even has a tune there in the heading. It was to be played to the congregation in Doe of the Dawn. It's such a happy name, Doe of the Dawn. And yet I have an assumption that it was probably more of a bit of a funeral dirge. Until you get to the end. The entire psalm starts in this lament, but it builds, as we'll see in a moment. And at this point, for us as the reader, or us as the singers, so to speak, there's nothing but lament. And further, as we will see in a bit, this is so connected to our lives with Yahweh that it was the psalm that the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, looked for, looked to for solace in the midst of his impending crucifixion and death. Jesus fully God, fully man, but in his humanity, in that moment, went through the Rolodex of Scripture in his head as a Jewish man and thought to himself, this is the psalm to go to for what I'm feeling right now. Think for a moment that human Jesus, yes, fully divine as well, 
Human Jesus was experiencing a pain unlike any other that humanity has faced in that moment of crucifixion. In his passion and his crucifixion, Psalm 22 is what came to mind. He turned to the psalm that he had learned in synagogue where the great King David lamented the feeling of God's seeming silence and absence. In that moment where Jesus took on the full wrath of God and God the Father turned his face away, Jesus felt this more than any other human, including David. Now, friends, it's also not sacrilegious for us to see ourselves in this psalm. Because just as David originally wrote it out of his own life circumstances, we can look at this oftentimes and see the same. And I would wager that we are far weaker than King David. And so this can apply in a lot of cases for us. Friends, do you ever cry out to God in this same manner? Lord, where are you? Why do I groan and it seems as though you don't hear? Why do you not answer me with the salvation that I need? I feel like I'm groaning and crying all day and night and I can't even sleep. Lord, I'm so depressed that I can't get a wink of sleep. Do you ever feel this way? Have any of you ever entered into this? This is the human condition. But amazingly, David doesn't leave it there. He isn't told by a pastor or a therapist to validate his feelings. He doesn't leave it there. He accepts those feelings and recognizes they are true. But he realizes that they're only true in his perspective. They're not true in an empirical sense. Just like that child who thinks that the object has gone away, but it really still exists, David knows better. And David doesn't leave it there. So we then see David's attempts to speak truth to himself right in the midst. In verses 3 through 5 and 9 through 10, David reminds himself of God's faithfulness. And take note, he does this both historically in the midst of God's people and also personally for himself. In verses 3 through 5, he is speaking truth of God's unchanging faithfulness. Remember, he tells himself as he prays to God, remember that God is holy and he is the covenant God of Israel. He doesn't just disappear. And they trusted in him and he answered and delivered them. They cried to him and he rescued them. Do you guys remember those stories? (laughs) I know many of you are reading through your chronological plans. Do you remember some of the stories in the Old Testament where they, air quotes, trusted in him? Did you bring us out here to die? Come on, God. Where's your, where's your providence? I know you just slayed the army of Pharaoh, but man, we miss the melons and the leeks. You ever had melons and leeks? They're flavorless. But they're so confused in their own mind. Their trust was actually just God's providential covenantal faithfulness that just kind of went, yeah, yeah, guys, I'll still be faithful. Right? But David is saying, look at what God did. And look at how Israel could trust him, even if they didn't. And this is important for us too, dear friends. We must be in the word of God so regularly that we see the historical arc of God's faithfulness to his people. When you are trudging through your chronological plan and you're going through and you're seeing the begats, recognize those begats are there. Why? Because God was faithful to every one of those people. Why are these stories there? Because God was faithful to every one of his people. This is why we read the word, to remind us that he is a covenant God who will not forsake his people. And it's important to notice in these stories that they doubted as well. They doubted like we do in their humanity, but God was nevertheless faithful. He's not a transactional God, as we'll see. Their circumstances, like ours, do not contradict God's good character. We must understand that. But maybe, like David, we remember these truths, but that doesn't seem to affect how we feel in the moment. For the distance of God feels palpable when we are suffering, doesn't it? Some of you in here who I know, I look to personally as the most mature Christians I know, I have seen you in those moments where you go, man, it doesn't feel like God is near. It feels palpable. And we see this struggle as David seems to move from speaking that truth to himself to then fall right back to the valley of despair. Verses 6 through 8 show that David's circumstances are making him feel lower than low. 
Maybe God would rescue Israel, he says to himself, right after saying, look, remember, he was faithful to them. But then he immediately says, maybe I'm not like them. Maybe I'm not even a man, but I'm simply a worm. And whatever faith I once had, he is saying, is now thrown back at me by the world. You can hear the remnants of 21.7. 21.7, for the king trusts in the Lord as the mocking voice of 22.8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. But then David attempts again to right the ship, to bolster his faith. Verses 9 through 10 are David's remembrance of God's faithfulness throughout his own life. Not just historically for Israel, but beginning with his birth. He uses the imagery of a midwife who catches the child as it is birthed. Remember, they didn't have these clean surgical centers or uh, anything else to be able to have birth. It was literally a woman who most likely was squatting and a, a, a woman underneath her, midwife, grabbing the child, pulling the child to the knees and trying to clean out its mouth and help it to breathe. This was a far more messy situation, but yet... David was saved. He was given life. He was given care in that moment. And so this imagery is given to God. God has always been there for David when he was vulnerable and without help. In all those moments, God had been there. But again, just as David bolsters his faith, notice what comes next. It falls back again. He says, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You can see this wrestling. I know the truth of the permanence of God. And yet, for myself, I feel as though he's not there. Brothers and sisters, can you empathize with David? By your silence, I can tell that you can. God has observed the same in you and I every time we falter in our fledgling faith. We know that God has been faithful in the past, but then the reminder of God's seeming, seeming failure to act in the present weighs heavier on our heart. For we are such finite and momentary creatures that no matter God's steadfast, steadfast faithfulness in the past, the only moment that seems to matter to our blind immaturity, our blind humanity, is the here and now. And it illustrates for all the cosmos how weak our faith really is. But the flip side of that is it also illustrates the glorious, gracious faithfulness of God. Friends, you probably hear that statement of our immature blind faith and you think, yeah, I got to do better. Here's the truth. You can't and neither can I. Praise God that he knows that we are but dust. And so any growth in our faith is only by his gracious gift. How often have we been in the situation where we exist in confusion and pain in these moments, much like David, and we cry out, God, why are you so far away? Be not far from me, please. What immense beauty and connection that this psalm brings to those in pain. For God knows that we are but dust. He knows it more intimately than we can ever understand it ourselves. In those moments of pain, much of what we desire is for someone to be near, but often, it is in those moments that we feel the most alone and even those around us seem against us because these are the moments that Satan is at war with us. And for David, this was the case as well. Look at what he says next in verses 12 through 21 as we see the surrounding ridicule, the surrounding ridicule. You see, it is part of our human condition as well that we think no one else understands. No one else knows and so what do we naturally do? Do we run towards God's people and run towards God, or do we run away? We run away, don't we? Would you read with me in verses 12 through 21? Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David uses poetic imagery, speaking in a progressing manner. We see him speak of bulls, then lions and dogs in verses 12 through 18, and then in reverse order in verses 20 through 21. David feels surrounded as if by beasts, and feeling as a worm, he knows that if one intervenes, he will be destroyed. If no one intervenes, he will be destroyed. The imagery here is powerful. It speaks of a picture of a man who is caught in the wilderness as if there for weeks or a long time. Imagine that human alone, dehydrated, caught in the barren wilderness, waiting to die. And suddenly this same man lifts his head to realize that surrounding him and circling him, ready to pounce, are predators of every sort. Strength is gone, dehydration is overwhelming, his heart melts as if it is wax in heat, and the days without food have made his bones begin to poke through his skin. There is no hope, only an awareness of assured death at the hands of these beasts. He knows that they will tear him apart at any moment, and as these beasts circle, he feels as though they are debating and deciding which part of him they will each forcefully devour when they finally pounce, tearing his clothing from him as if they were casting lots for it. And friends, I don't have time to get into it today, but verse 16 is a powerful verse in the Hebrew, uh, for the wording therefore pierced is a word that is difficult to be translated and is debated in old Hebrew texts, a lot of what you see here is, they encircle me like a lion at my hands and feet. But that word in the Hebrew can also be translated into pierced. And so there was a debate in the early years of the church where the rabbis said, we don't want people to associate with this with Christ who was pierced, so let's go back and put it in the manuscripts that it was just encircling like lions. And so it's an amazing wording that David uses here that's both prophetic and contemporary. It's powerful. It doesn't negate the pierce, but it also speaks to what he was feeling in the moment. It's powerful. This person feels all of this pain. And this is why it was so perfect for a prophetic picture of Christ, which we'll talk about more in a moment. And so this imagery causes David's cry to make all the more sense in verse 19 as he cries, Come to my aid. It's like the screech of a dying soldier in a World War II movie crying for a medic to come help him amidst the firefight. Help me or I will die. Deliver me. Save me. Otherwise, I am simply laying in the dust of death even though I'm breathing. You start to see the imagery that translates to the cross. You see, when God feels distant, we find ourselves overcome with fear and weakness. Especially for those of us who are Christians, who, as he says, have felt the presence of God from the very beginnings of our lives in many cases, or the beginnings of our Christian life at least. And so tears come to our eyes in these moments, tears of confusion. We know that God has been faithful to us in the past. We know that he is faithful to his covenant people. So why in this situation does it seem like one shoe drops after another, and now I am finding myself waiting for the next shoe to drop. And I notice that I'm doubting God's goodness. I've heard from you in pastoral care. What's wrong with me? This has never happened before. God's always been faithful, and I've always trusted. And now it's just so dark. It feels like he's far. So shame creeps in for the follower of Christ. Because we reason, if I only had more faith... Then God would respond. But friends, that is a false view of God. It's a transactional relationship with a false God. It's not how the steadfast and loving covenant God treats us. But the taunts of the enemy in verses 7 through 8, and they're encircling as if to devour in verses 12 through 21, leave David hopeless, weak, demoralized, feeling abandoned and alone. The lies of the enemy 
replicated by the taunting world, scream for David and for you and I when we feel in similar situations to mistrust God. The lies of the enemy dovetail with the sinful rebellion and false lordship in our own heart to pronounce God as evil and uncaring, distant and callous. If he really loved me, we say, as if petulant children, he would give me exactly the victory that I want and need. And the world adds to that. And so we find ourselves right back in the garden, taking our cues from the enemy, doubting the goodness of God, and creating a narrative for ourselves that is simply false because we have set ourselves up as the one determining good from evil. And friends, I do it in my own life, but then what is shocking and ironic is I sit with many of you and and others in your pastoral need, and I point to the blanket with the object under it, and I say, it's still there. Don't you see it? And we look at the blanket and we say, no. So what do we do? Do we simply muster up more faith as if we are prosperity Pentecostals? Do we go to those around us so they can tell us the same? Just have more faith. Do we simply wait it out so that our feelings eventually catch up and tell us, oh, see, God is good. Remember this? He's giving you what you want. Maybe we wait for the next thing to happen so we can again decide truth based on our circumstances. No, none of these will work. David does quite the opposite, in fact. His feelings have lied to him And so he determines to act in spite of his feelings. You see, this is one of the reasons that wisdom comes with age, is because as age comes, your eyesight starts to fail, your memory starts to fail. And you start to realize, what I saw maybe wasn't what I saw. Maybe that argument I had with my wife wasn't exactly how I remember it. Maybe I should listen to her. She probably has a better memory than I do and you start to remember that you're pretty weak and that you don't see truth just because you see it. And so David, in his wisdom, declares, i got to do something different. I can't exist in my feelings to tell me truth. So what does he do? He gives a promise to praise regardless of circumstances a promise to praise regardless of circumstances. Would you read with me in verses 22 through 31? 22 through 31. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. We see David's promise to praise regardless of circumstances. You might say, well, Hans, this is what we're talking about. Look at him. He just has so much faith. No, he doesn't. Did you not just read the whole rest of the psalm? David is just like you and me. I got nothing. Tears are streaming down his face, and yet he says, and I know truth. Even though I don't believe it right now, even though I don't feel it, I know what is true. It's no secret that we live in a world where the topic of knowledge and truth has been contorted and twisted beyond recognition. Our culture and society say that if you experience it, it must be truth. 
And this is especially true if you are part of a predetermined oppressed group, but that's a topic for an entirely other sermon. Regardless, one's own opinion and experience becomes fact all too easily in our day and age. And so this psalm to our contemporary reading seems confusing. Didn't David just say that he feels and perceives God to be distant, as if he's hiding his face? Didn't David just say that God has not heard him? So why? Why the quick switch to a completely different proclamation? Because David grasps what we have such a hard time accepting in our society ourselves. Just because we feel it, just because we think it or experience it, does not make it truth. We are all far too much like the young baby that lives in object impermanence. If the blessing is in my hands, God exists and is good. If the blessing seems gone, as if under a blanket of our current suffering, God must not exist or must be cruel. But David understands that just because you personally are in a bad place, it does not nullify the truth of God's existence or his goodness or his covenant faithfulness. His providential actions, while incomprehensible to us in the moment, are just as faithful as they have ever been. And in times of silence, seeming silence, often they are more faithful than even in those times of blessing. So what does he do to remind himself of the truth when his situation lies to him? He proclaims the truth. How does he know the truth? Three different ways. God's covenantal word, God's covenantal people, and God's covenantal promise. First, God's covenantal word. It's not explicitly stated here, but all of verse 22 through 31 is based upon the covenantal word that David has held on to. For David, Scripture would have been the Torah and the beginning of the prophets in Joshua and Judges. And his declaration of God's name among God's assembly is based on the foundation of the covenant that God has given to Israel. And it is this word that has given him the truth that God has never abandoned his people. He directly counters his own experience in verse 24. And the truth of God's word is a historical proof that God does not hide his face from his people. He doesn't count on his own feelings. He looks at the covenantal truth that exists. He doesn't despise and reject his people. Quite the opposite. He has been nothing but faithful to his promises and his ultimate goal for his people, which is salvation and restoration. He looks to God's covenantal word. And second, he proclaims the truth by worshiping amongst God's covenantal people. Notice that the recipient of the proclamations in this last section changes from verse 22 to 23. David goes from speaking to God to preaching to the congregation of his people. You see, when our feelings tell us we have been abandoned by God, what I have observed in pastoral ministry is that the result is then people will drift from the church or run from the church and step away from the gathering Those are all people that feel like it on Sundays. So I can't be genuine when I come because I don't feel like it. But that is the exact opposite of what we need when we are experiencing something contrary to scriptural truth. And so David writes in this song a declaration that he will go among the assembly of God's people and he will praise him. But Hans, you might ask, what if I can't genuinely worship him? Something that's big in our society. If it's not authentic, should I do it? Well, brothers and sisters, God's warranting of praise is not dependent upon your circumstances. God's warranting of praise is not dependent upon your genuineness of feeling that he is worthy. God's warranting of praise is there because he is praiseworthy, because he is holy, because he is glorious with or without us. Entering into praise amidst the congregation, even when we don't feel like it, will counteract the lie that we've told ourselves, that we deserve to turn our back on God because he has supposedly turned his back on us. It will subvert the very activity of Satan as he lies to us. Because in being amongst his people, we will realize that the praise that they are giving, the people around us, is evidence of his goodness and grace. Worship only comes as a result of his gracious gift. He says this in verse 25, from you comes my praise. So friends, what do you do when you don't feel like it? You come anyway, and you let the people of this church sing to you. Praise God to you. Show you that God is there. Lift slightly that blanket of suffering 
so you can go, I see it. And then you pray in the midst, God, praise only comes from you. Please give me the ability to praise you. My faith is weak. Help me. Friends, you have no idea how many Sundays I do that when I'm standing back there about to come up here. My faith is weak. Please give me an ability to preach your word and praise your name. For we cannot worship in our own power. That will fade. And also, being amongst his people will remind us that vows are not like contracts. Look at verse 25 again. We don't stay true to our vows because the other person has stayed true. That is a transactional relationship. But God is covenantal. And so being amongst his people reminds us of that covenant and that it is meant to be a safe haven for those times that our circumstances and our feelings lie to us. God has promised us his faithfulness and he will provide it even if it is in a different way than we expect. Very recently, I went through this time where I had this inner turmoil regarding my own marriage. I I was struggling. I thought, man, I don't deserve my wife. She probably doesn't even like me because I'm just not the greatest husband, not the greatest guy. And man, if I relied on my feelings, I would have been in the darkest shadow of death. But the covenant that my wife has been so faithful to show me over 20, almost 21 years of marriage made me go, man, I don't see it right now because of my own grotesqueness and brokenness, but it's there. Covenant is the place where we stay safe while we are wrestling with those lies and those narratives. And so coming amidst God's covenantal people, it helps us with that. And third, David reminds himself of the truth of God's future promises. Even though the suffering that he is going through is heavy, he knows, as he states in verse 28, that God is still on the throne. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. David reminds himself of the future promises. All of eternity is headed towards the fulfillment of those purposes and not purposes for our own life. And so those who fear him may seem afflicted now, but we will eventually eat and be satisfied in full one day. It's reminiscent of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He references God's covenantal promise to Abraham in verse 27. Notice what it says there. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And because of this, the name of God will be worshipped for all time. Generation will pass on news of God's goodness to the next generation. And kingship belongs to him alone, the one who rules over all nations and will bring them all into subjection to his reign. All of this is promised by God, and based on his faithfulness in the past. So we can trust that his faithfulness is permanent and steadfast, even if our hearts try to tell us otherwise based on our current circumstances. Friends, Paul told the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that God's will for our life is sanctification. And if the whole point of sanctification is to grow up in spiritual maturity into the image of Christ, then this is a psalm that we can cling to. For it is in being able to speak and proclaim the truth of God's word, even when we are tempted to do otherwise, that we become more founded and steadfast, as if grafted into the strength of the unchangeable nature of God. Perhaps that's why this psalm is so powerful for Christ and the gospel writers. One commentator stated this about Psalm 22. Only as we understand what the psalm means on its own are we better able to understand why Jesus chose these words to reflect his own agony of abandonment by his Father at the final moment of crisis represented by the cross. Far from being just a prediction of events surrounding Jesus' death, and there is value in that, by the way, the psalm reflects a model of response to abandonment and divine delay with which Jesus could identify and by which he could open windows for others into his own spiritual conflict. Friends, this psalm is so impactful for Christ and the connection so obvious to the gospel writers that Psalm 22 is referred to 24 times in the New Testament. Three of four direct quotations and 14 of 20 allusions are found within the narratives of just Jesus' passion and crucifixion. In seeing Psalm 22 in its original context for David, we can see why Jesus of Nazareth in his humanity clung so tightly to its truths, even crying out its opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
upon the cross. Only then can we begin to branch the prophetic nature of it as if it's used in all four of the Gospels to connect to what Christ went through as we heard in the New Testament reading. Christ had a burst heart. His heart literally melted. Christ had dehydration and thirst. So much so that one of the gospel writers says, to fulfill prophecy, he asked for the wine. His hands and feet were pierced. He was surrounded by mocking detractors, and his clothes were divided for spoil. And most of all, his cry of confusion was there as he felt completely abandoned by the Father. As the perfect high priest who was and always tempted as we are in our humanity, Jesus understood what David and what you and I in far less extreme circumstances go through when it seems as though God is not answering us in our suffering. For on the cross of Calvary, when God seemed most absent and most silent, the Father was in fact providing the highest act of faithfulness all creation had ever seen and will ever see. Let me say that again. In that moment, when God seemed the most absent and the most silent, he was, in fact, providing the highest act of faithfulness all creation had ever seen and will ever see. You see, when God seems the most distant, he is actually drawing us the most near. When God seems the most silent, he is actually proclaiming the greatest declaration of his glory. If you're sitting here and feel as though you are far from God, I want to tell you pointedly that he has brought you here today for a reason. And that is so that you can know that, that he is calling you near. If you do not know Christ as your Lord, Savior, and King, I want to invite you to come talk with me after the service. If you have felt that God is far... I would love to talk with you and help you walk with him and know him. Any of our pastors would love to do the same. When you and I feel as though God is hidden or he has turned his face, we must remember the permanence of the gospel and the unchangeable nature of our God. We must fight against our desire as immature children to believe that he has disappeared simply because we don't see him in our human capacity. So friends, when you and I find ourselves in those times, we must remember Psalm 22 and remind ourselves of David's promise to praise regardless of his circumstances. David's words here are a call to persevere in faithful reliance upon God in those very moments when he seems like he is distant and has not heard our cries. It's in Psalm 22 that we hear and recognize that those most faithful to the Father, most like him, and men after his heart, like David, and especially Jesus as God, will still see suffering. It's promised to us. Suffering and death are realities for the faithful followers of God, and yet this is not the end. For God's plans will be completed because he has promised and vowed that they would and this is why it shall be told of the Lord in coming generations. And when you doubt that God is faithful, remember the last verse of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, the very end. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Friends, who's that talking about? Us. We are the ones that proclaim every Sunday and every day of our lives that he has done it. What is it that he has done? He has attained salvation for all his people. And he's done so in the moment where even to his son, he seemed the most distant and the most silent. As Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, he became sin for us. He became the very thing that the triune God hates, and he did so voluntarily. He took the sin of the whole world upon himself and the abandonment of the Father so that you and I would be forgiven and redeemed. And the gospel author John showed us the last minutes of this in John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Christ finished what David had prophesied 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 22. Friends, if that's not object permanence, I don't know what is. You can look and say, I don't feel it, but God promised it, and it happened. His faithfulness has always and will always be there. No matter the chaos, the rebellion, or suffering we find ourselves in on this side of eternity, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And his purposes are happening and are moving forward even when it doesn't feel like it. And because of this, he is worthy of our praise amidst the congregation of his people, is he not? Friends, he has done it. David could not see God's faithfulness, but in his lament and in the gift of praise he was given by the Father, he prophetically spoke of the most faithful act God could ever provide to give restoration and redemption. The very act of sacrifice and forgiveness that brings you and I into his presence and makes us a part of his covenant of faithfulness so that we too can declare his glory among a broken and dead world. Praising God especially when it makes the least sense, will stabilize us amidst the storm and will call us to lean on the truth of God's unchanging character and plan and not the ever-changing tides of our own hearts or the broken world around us. Amen? No matter where you are today, no matter where you are at in life or what you're going through, let's praise his name among the congregation and allow his spirit to work. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your inspiration of King David. Thank you for your inspiration of the word that not only speaks of evidence that you have been moving through all time and space, and prophetic evidence that secures your place as the God above gods, the name above names, the king above all kings. But also, Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of Psalm 22 in its original context. We thank you that it speaks to our hearts in such a profound way. And so in our suffering, far less extreme than what your son went through because he was dying for the sins of the whole world, we can turn like Jesus of Nazareth did to Psalm 22 and we can cry out and say, Lord, we know the truth even though it doesn't feel like it. Lord, I pray that this psalm would speak to the hearts of the people in this church. We, Lord, myself included, we too often rely upon our feelings as if they are empirical truth. And in so doing, we repeat the sins of our first mother and father. Help us instead in these moments, Lord, the moments where we struggle, where we are blind. Help us by your spirit to recognize your immutability, your unchanging nature, and your permanence not just in our lives, not just in the church, but before the cosmos even existed and long past when all things will be remade. Help us to remember that you are who we should cling to in those moments when things don't make sense. Retreating to ourselves is actually the worst possible thing we could do. And so draw us into your word, draw us into your people, draw us into the truth of your covenant faithfulness and help us, Lord, in those moments where Proclaiming your gospel is probably the most powerful. Help us be the evangelist you've called us to be. But we know, Lord, that we can't do it on our own, and so we ask for your spirit within us to do the work and to proclaim your glory among the nations. We do so even now as we step into communion, as we sing of your truth, and as we declare even by our actions of taking the supper as one body that you are king and Lord and you have done it. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we pray that you would be Lord over it. In Jesus' name, amen.